This morning, I want to tell you a story. And it's a great story from one of the very earliest sections of the Bible. And you're thinking, oh, a Bible story. I've I've heard all the Bible stories. I can almost guarantee you that you have never heard this Bible story. And probably, certainly have never heard a sermon preached on it. Even though this Bible story has the single verse that is the most quoted Bible verse in the rest of the Bible. There's a verse in this story that is repeated and paraphrased dozens of times for the rest of Scripture. And yet this story has almost completely fallen off the radar of modern Christians. In fact, I have a big, thick, systematic theology book like this that was given to us as seminary students. And this Bible story is not mentioned in that book one time. Now, why should you be interested in this story? Well, if you really listen patiently and you let this story capture your imagination, it reveals how you can have what you most desire. Plus, it's just a weird, fun, strange story. So if you're interested in following along, grab your message notes. We are in a summer series that we call Authentic. And what we've been doing every weekend in this series is looking at different surprising encounters that people have with God in the Bible. Because how the Bible talks about authentic spirituality is often different than the stereotype people have of the Bible. And possibly the strangest of all the surprising stories we're going to look at this summer is in this text that we're going to look at today. It's in Exodus chapters 33 and 34. And as our story begins... Here is what has been happening. God has just delivered the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt. Pharaoh has said, please just, Moses, take your people and get out. And you'll remember all the crazy stuff that happened, right? There's been the the plagues and locusts and the angel of death and snakes and fiery hail and all kinds of really weird stuff that's been happening during that time. And then the Israelites leave Egypt, but the Egyptian army changes its mind and it pursues them. God parts the Red Sea for the Israelites, but then it crashes and destroys all the charioteers in Pharaoh's army. And then they go out into the wilderness and Moses goes up a Mount Sinai and there's fire on the mountain and Moses gets the 10 commandments. And then God says something amazing. He says, I am going to lead you into the promised land, and I am going to tabernacle among you. Now, the tabernacle was a big tent that probably looked something like this. Remember, the children of Israel, they're they're in the desert, and they're all living in in tents or or in the open air, and they're on the way to the promised land, and God says, I'm not only going to lead you there, I am going to put my presence right there with you. And so that your leaders can come in and meet with me and I can, I can guide you and you can draw near to me. And so that's what's just been happening, like in the weeks of months right ahead of this story. And so how do the people respond to all this, the people of Israel? Do they go, right on, we get to have God living with us, lead on, God. No, they basically stick their tongues out at God. They rebel. They sin in every way you can imagine. They even fashion idols and deliberately turn their back on God and worship the golden calves that they fashion instead of God. 
And in Exodus chapter 33, there's kind of a humorous exchange between God and Moses. God says, you know what? Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the promised land. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. (laughs) Raise your hand if you're a parent and you've ever lost your patience with a child. Anybody here relate to what he's saying here, right? He's saying, I will give you the land because I promised it to Abraham. So it's a promise and I keep my promises. I'll give you the property. I'll give you the power to take it over. I'll give you the prosperity. I'll give you the prestige of being a new nation. But my presence, no. I I will not be dwelling in your midst. Now, the funny thing is to me, a lot of people would consider this a dream religion, right? A lot of people, this is exactly what they want from God. They want the prosperity. They want the blessings. They want the property. They want the power. They want the prestige. They just don't want the presence of God right there in the middle of their lives, right? Messing with them. And Moses and the Israelites are being offered this by God. But Moses doesn't want this. He says, God, if you're not going to give us your presence, don't give us anything. Next verse. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, then do not send us up from here. Because, now watch this fascinating sentence. What else will distinguish me and your people, from all the other people on the face of the earth. This is super interesting because what distinguishes you from everybody else on earth in your imagination, in your mind, is what gives you identity, right? It's what makes you, you. And you probably think of something, you're like, you know what distinguishes me? Is I really am skilled at this. Well, I really have this kind of a nice personality. Or I've had this amazing experience of God's uh, uh, blessing in some way. Or, or where I live, or the job I have, or the degree I have, or where I got my degree. That's what distinguishes me. In other words, I have power, I have property, I have prosperity, I have God's blessing, so I feel like I am somebody. But Moses is saying, actually, I know better. Actually, none of those things are what satisfies you. None of those. They're not my deepest longing. And so what is and how do I get it? Well, what happens next is this mysterious story from the book of Exodus, and it's in three acts. Act one, the daring request. After Moses says to God, you know what? I'm not going to go anywhere. I am not moving without your presence. And God says to Moses, okay, I will go with you. And then Moses says, and I want something more. Now, what else could Moses possibly want than all that? Well, watch what he asks for. Verse 18, then Moses said, and let's all say that quote together out loud. Now, show me your glory. If you've got a pen or a pencil with you, take take that and circle the word glory in your notes because this little story is all about glory. And if you don't understand glory, you can't understand this story. And that means we've got a serious problem because glory has become one of those religious words kind of a cliche word, and its meaning's been totally lost. Glory! 
Glory to God. Glory. Give God glory. Oh, you know, like hallelujah. Nobody knows what it means anymore. So what does glory actually mean? I want to try to define this. And I got a lot of this from Tim Keller, who is a pastor who used to be a language arts professor before he went into ministry. And he points out that in English, we don't really have a word that precisely matches the nuances of the Hebrew word for glory. But he says the closest matches we have, he suggests, are the words weight and probably the English word that comes closest is the word matter. Because in English, matter means substance or weight, and it also means significance, right? So glory, something's glory is weight or matter or mass. To say God is more glorious than anything else means God has more weight. God has more spiritual mass, more matter than anything else. Now, there's something this story teaches us. Moses is being offered all of this, and he says, now show me your glory. And one of the things this means is that human beings cannot live without glory. We all need glory, right? If glory means matter, we all have a deep need to sense that we matter. Nobody wants to not matter. We want to have weight. Nobody wants their life to be just insubstantial. And so we always try to find something to, to give us glory. And my glory is what I believe makes me matter. Now, different people glory in different things. You hear people talk about professional glory, artistic glory, financial glory, sports glory. And what they're really looking for are people to come up to them and say, you're the best at that. I read your stuff. You're the best. We want to hire you in your field. You're the best. You know, I've looked at the way you parent. And as a mother or as a father, I think you're the best. As a teacher, you're the best. That makes us feel good. You feel like you matter. And you need that. All human beings need that, a sense that your life has some weight to it. Now, some human beings don't seek glory in those ways. They would say, I don't care about artistic glory or financial glory or professional glory. They are after love. You know why? Because when somebody loves you, that's a sense of glory too. When someone touches your cheek and they look at you in the eye and they say, I love you, you feel like I matter to someone, right? And you feel this reflected glory, like my life has meaning. I, I feel substantial. I feel real. In some form, we all need glory. I mean, it's devastating when we don't have it. When you see a person who's really depressed, what do they say? Nothing I do matters. I feel like I don't matter to anyone. My life is insubstantial. That is devastating to people. The problem is, all sources of glory fade, right? And are fading. I read a, an ESPN interview that was done just this past week with Michael Phelps. And Michael Phelps, uh, and raise your hand if you've heard that name, Michael, Michael Phelps. One of the most famous people in the world, right? He has won more Olympic gold medals than any other human being who has ever lived, ever. And so in ESPN, the magazine, they were asking him, 
How is it that you had this downward spiral after the 2012 Olympics and you were arrested for a DUI, you started using, I mean, you were smoking dope, you were uh, drinking, you, you had to go into rehab, and you were suicidal. You tried to take your own life. How, how could that be? How, how could that be? And you know what he said in the interview? This is just this past week. He said, I looked at this pile of gold medals and I realized they don't matter. He said, I realized all the glory I've ever gotten in my life is because of my athletic skill, and that's not going to last another 10 years. And he said, I felt like I, I don't have a reason for living because that's so insubstantial. And he said, I literally didn't want to live anymore. And they said, well, what turned you around? And he said, I read a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And he said, I discovered that there is a greater purpose for life than getting Olympic gold medals. Now, I don't know. They didn't go into detail on that, so I, I don't know where he's at with his faith, but he's on to something. All sources of glory fade and are fading except for one. And this is true if you're Michael Phelps or if you're you. You know, if you think this is what distinguishes me. I'm, I'm well-known in my field. I am skilled at this. I have achieved success at this. I was able to buy property in Santa Cruz. It's amazing. Uh, you know, or I have good looks, or I'm athletic. They all fade. And if your very self is based on one of those things, what will actually happen is it'll drive you into the ground because you'll overwork trying to keep that glory, and you'll burn out. On the other hand, if you're seeking love, that is great. I hope you are. But... If you're seeking love in order to matter, if you're looking at somebody, your husband or wife, or your kids, or your grandkids, or your friends, and you're saying, if you love me, then I'll know I really matter, then you're putting way too much weight on that relationship, and you actually will end up driving them away. All sources of glory fade and are fading except for one. And Moses knows this. And so when God offers him all this glory, think about it. He's saying, you can have the land, you can have property and prosperity and power and prestige. Moses actually knows that kind of glory is not enough. And he goes, show me your glory. Not behind temples, not behind veils. I want to see you face to face, God. I just want to know you. I want to know you beyond the benefits. And this is huge. Now follow me here. Sometimes we ask God for blessings because we're doing some new venture and we ask for blessings. That's good. I hope you do. Or we, we're confused and we ask God for wisdom because you need clarity. That's great. Or you're weak and you ask God for power. I hope you do. But in all those prayers, God is still a means to an end. It's only when you pray to God, God, I just want to know you. Just show me your glory. That's when you're saying, God, I just want to know you just for you yourself. Even if everything else goes wrong in my life, I just want to feel connected to you. I just want to know you. And I actually think every single human being longs for this. As Tim Keller puts it, to see God's glory is to see God as beautiful and not just useful. Isn't that good? To see God's glory is to see God as beautiful and not just useful. Now, 
Look up here for just a second. How do you ever feel this? How do you encounter this? You know what? I think that all of us kind of get a little glimpse of this at certain moments of our lives. Raise your hand if you have ever taken a hike or a walk, for example, through the redwoods around here. Anybody ever been to a redwood forest, right? I love to go up when I was hiking yesterday at Camp Hammer, the day before at Henry Cowell. I love it. When you are standing there looking at trees that are taller than the Statue of Liberty, and you're looking at trees that are as old as, you know, they they were born back in the days of Jesus Christ, these 2,000-year-old, 325-foot-tall trees, what happens? You get this sense of, I am so small in comparison, and my lifespan is so short, yet I'm connected to something vast and big, and it gives you the sense of peace, right? And not just the redwoods, when you look at the starry night sky and you imagine the distances between the stars, you think of the same thing. Or probably this summer you went someplace pretty, like maybe a national park like Yosemite, and you stand in the Yosemite Valley and you get that feeling, or maybe a place like the Grand Canyon, and you get lost in a kind of rapture You have pleasure just in its beauty, and it has nothing to do with its usefulness, right? Nobody looks at the Grand Canyon and goes, what has the Grand Canyon done for me lately, right? (laughs) How is Half Dome putting food on my table? You just experience pleasure just in beauty. In fact, there's a whole new field of science called neuroaesthetics. It's just emerged like in the last five years, and they do brain scans, and they study people looking at beautiful things. And you know what they've discovered? They've discovered when you see beauty, it can give you as much joy as feeling head over heels in love because it activates the exact same parts of the brain. And they interviewed people, what's it feel like? One person said, when you're in the presence of something beautiful, your soul finds a kind of rest that pushes you outward from a focus on your own needs. You know, everybody's got ingrown eyeballs, and then you see something beautiful, you just go, wow. Another person put it this way, seeing beauty right-sizes you. Don't you love that? Okay, now think of this. If I sense that when I look at beautiful waves and trees and canyons and sunsets, how much more will I sense that when I look at God, the source of all those beautiful things? And humans just long for this. And I'll show you. You could see this in so much poetry and songs. I think this is what George Harrison, former Beatle, was saying when he sang, In My Sweet Lord, I really want to know you, God. I really want to see you. This is what J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, meant when he said, The chief purpose of life for any one of us is to increase our knowledge of God. And to be moved to say, we proclaim your glory. We thank you for the greatness of your splendor. Deep down, we all say to God, please show me your glory. This is what Moses wants, to see God. And then God says, no. I told you it was a weird story. God says, no, no. And that's act two, the mysterious answer. Exodus 33, 19, the Lord said, well, you cannot see my face, 
for no one may see me and live. I can't show you my glory. It might destroy you. Now, what does that mean? It means there's an incompatibility between a holy God and sin. It's like putting fire and water together or acid and base or, I don't know, AC and DC or something. They can't exist together. The infinite holy God in contact with finite sinful creatures, what would happen is just, and the creatures would just vaporize. And that's bad news for us because we are sinful, finite creatures, every single one of us. And God goes, yeah, you can't see my glory. It's too much for your circuitry. And so the one thing in the world we most long for is the one thing we can't have. (laughs) Is that the point of the story? I don't think so. Because God doesn't say no and leave. What he does next in this strange little story is a foreshadowing of the future. It says, then the Lord said, starting in verse 19, the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock, a little little crack in the rock, and I'm going to cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Now, the Bible says all over the place that God is a spirit. He doesn't actually have a body. And so when he talks about a hand and stuff, that's, that's a metaphor. What God is saying here is, I can't show you my full glory right now, but I will make a way for you to begin to see it. You can see a hint. And I'll protect you so you don't die. And so Moses goes up on the rock, and then God shows And what comes next is God's great self-description. This is the verse that is the most quoted and paraphrased verse in the whole rest of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. You know, you could ask 100 people, finish the sentence God is, and 100 people would finish it 100 different ways. Well, what if you ask God? Hey, God, finish the sentence God is. What would he say? That's what happens in this verse. So what are you going to see? You know, you're, you're, it's like you're, you're, you're opening up the furnace and you're seeing inside the core of God. This is the engine of God. Now, remember, they've just seen fire on the mountain and they've seen plagues and they've seen the angel of death. They've seen some scary stuff. So what kind of nuclear explosion is Moses going to see here, right? Watch this. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. It's just this giant fire hydrant burst of love. In fact, really quick, I want to look at some specific words God uses here to describe himself so you can just feel the momentum building here. First, compassionate. And the Hebrew word translated compassionate here means love rooted in a deep bond. Now, wait a minute. Rooted in a deep bond. 
Remember the context. The people are all spitting in God's face. They're rebelling constantly. They're complaining constantly. They're breaking the deep bond. There's no deep bond that they're feeling to God. So what does this mean, love root? What deep bond? There's no deep bond. Let me explain it this way. I think I have shown admirable restraint so far in this sermon in not talking about my grandson, Freddie, but the time has come. <laughs> so we, we got to babysit him uh, last week, and, and I, I took like a thousand pictures, you know. Here he is. Oh, look, look. Oh, that's cuter. That's cuter. Now he's cuter. Now he's cuter. Now he's cuter. He's becoming cuter right in front of my eyes, right? So here's a picture where Lori and I are both like holding him, fighting over him, and we're feeding him his bottle, and he's just adorable, right? How many of you have ever held a little baby that you love? Anybody here ever had this experience? Then you'll know what I mean when I say I looked at Freddie and I thought I would literally, he's five weeks old when I took this picture a few days ago, I would literally die for him, literally. You know what I mean? I mean, like, somehow or another, if he was uh, playing in front of a truck or something, and I saw the truck bearing down on him, and I knew in an instant i got to push him out of the way, and the truck's going to hit me, and I'm probably going to die, I, would, I wouldn't even think about it, right? And you probably feel the same way about your own little baby that you love that you held. Of course you would. Give your life for this baby. Now, here's my question. What has Freddie ever done to earn my love, right? Freddie is the most high-maintenance human being I know right now. <laughs> All he ever does is take and take and take. And the only thing he contributes to the world is a mess. He poops and he spits up and he screams and he doesn't let us sleep. But I would die for him. Die for him. There is a deep bond. Freddie doesn't even know I exist. He's not creating the deep bond. He's not generating this. He's never done anything to perform for me to earn my love. The deep bond totally originates in me toward this human who doesn't even know I, I'm there. And do you understand that this is exactly how God feels about you? You don't have to perform for him. He's not like, you're too high maintenance, so I don't love you anymore. You make messes, and he would die for you. Because there's a deep bond that he feels toward you, his beloved child. And that's just the first word. He says he's compassionate. He has this deep bond. And then he says he's gracious. And the Hebrew word here means a heartfelt response by someone who has something to give to somebody who has a need. He says, you got a need, and I got everything to give, and so I'm just going to lavish it on you. And then he says, slow to anger. And that's a funny phrase. The Hebrew expression used here literally means long-nosed. And that's a metaphor for the tendency of human beings' noses to get red when we're super mad. You know, your face gets red, your nose gets red, right? And God is saying it takes a long time for my nose to get red. <laughs> Contrary to popular opinion, God does not have an anger management problem. He's saying, I'm in no hurry to judge sinners. Aren't you glad to hear that? And then the word abounding, abounding in what? Check it out. Love and 
faithfulness. Now think about this for a minute. Feelings of love are useless unless there's also faithfulness, right? I mean, someone you know may have told you, I love you. And they might have even really meant it when they said it. But they weren't faithful. And it broke your heart. And God is saying, I'm not like that. I will never say, you know what? I don't love you anymore. In fact, next he says, maintaining love. I love that picture. He actively maintains love like somebody maintaining a pipeline of water. But God is maintaining a pipeline of love. To who? The good people? No. To the wicked, the rebels, and the sinful people. In other words, in like word after word after word after word, there's just this waterfall of love. That's God's description of himself as absolutely unbounded, unconditional, unending, infinite love, 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 love. And yet, look at the very next verse. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What? He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You read that and you go, that, that, that's, that's, that's a contradiction. How can he be all infinitely loving and yet not let any sin go unpunished ever? That's super bad news to me because I'm sinful. And this, listen, this sets up this tension that doesn't get fully resolved for the whole rest of the Bible. And the tension is, how can God be totally loving and also totally just? You know, any good movie or any good story or plot has what storytellers call a mystery box. And you're like, it's, it's a mystery, like, like in the TV show Lost. It was like, what is the island? And you're trying to figure it out for the whole rest of the plot. Well, the mystery box in the Bible is this. How can God... From the very first pages here, say he's infinitely loving, and yet how can he be totally holy? Because how is it that God never wants anybody to be lost? Because he's so loving. But how is it that God could also never let any sin go unpunished? Because he's totally holy. So you feel like saying, well, God, you can't have it both ways. You can't be totally holy, not ever letting any sin go unpunished, and 100% loving and forgiving because that means you let some sin go unpunished. It can't. It can't coexist. It's like you can't be a Dodger fan and a Giants fan. That's impossible, right? <laughs> you can't be a Cal fan and a Stanford fan. You, know, you can't be a Raider fan and live in reality. The two just don't <laughs> go together. <laughs> you got to be one or the other, right? But what God is saying is, but see, that's my glory. And you're, if the Bible ended here, you'd be like scratching your head. How, how is that possible, right? Now watch. Even this mysterious answer is enough for Moses to have the greatest experience of worship he has ever had in his life. It says, and Moses bowed down to the ground and worshipped. And this part of the strange little story ends. But there is something more for us. And that is Act 3, the beautiful solution. Because this tension develops all through the Bible, and almost at the very end of the Bible, it gets resolved. And it says the resolution is in Jesus Christ. In John 1.14, watch this. 
the Word, that's God, the Creator, became flesh, and watch this, made his dwelling among us. The phrase John uses for made his dwelling literally means he tabernacled among us, deliberately evoking that strange story in Exodus. And watch this. He came to live with us, right? In Jesus Christ's humanity, God tented among us. He was present with us. And then he says, and we have seen his what? His glory. He's saying, at last, the tension is resolved. At last, we see in Jesus Christ something so beautiful that it takes our breath away. And it's like looking at the Grand Canyon or the stars or a sunset. How is it that God could be totally holy and totally loving and forgive everybody? Well, on the cross, what happened? God's love and holiness met. And Jesus Christ took on himself the punishment of sin that was due to all of us. And I know that's sometimes hard to understand. And this is inexact, but in Santa Cruz terms, he took all our bad karma. <laughs> so that there was payment for all the sin that human beings ever did. And now there is no condemnation for us anymore. Only this fountain of love. And see, if you don't believe that, you might believe in a God that loves everybody, right? But that's not going to move you to tears. That's not going to just break your heart. It's just God is love. It's kind of like a little slogan, like, have a nice day. And that idea just kind of, kind of lays there without the other half. Or you might believe in a God who's only holy and just and righteous, but not really loving. And, you know, you got to toe the line and keep all the laws and pray the prayers. And if you don't, you don't go to heaven. But does that really move you with its beauty? No. It's when you look at Christ. And you think, on the cross, the justice and the love of God met perfectly. On the cross, that's when your heavenly father saw the truck bearing down on you. And he pushed you to safety and he took the punishment that was due to you because he loves you. That's when you look at that and you think, God I rejoice in the splendor of your glory. And remember we said human beings all need glory, a sense that they have matter, right? Well, it's on the cross that God looks at you and he says, here's how much you matter to me. You were lost. And I died for you before you even knew I existed. And that sense of glory, that, that'll never fade away. And it gives you both a sense of humility and a sense of confidence. Humility because you go, I'm just a sinner. And confidence, yet God says, I matter. And, and, and it transforms you. Like looking, looking at some beautiful landscape, only better. And this is why the Bible says, and this has become my all-time favorite Bible verse in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we get to do what Moses 
really wanted to do. And we get to do it. We gaze at his glory and we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. You look at the glory of God in Christ and it changes you. It right-sizes you. That's the key to change. It's the key to peace. It's the key to satisfaction. Is the gaze at the beauty of Jesus. That's where it all starts. Because the bottom line is this. In Jesus Christ, the mercy and the justice of God meet perfectly. Now listen. Today's the first weekend of the month. That's when we here at TLC always take communion. And so I want to say right now for the next five minutes, just get lost in his beauty. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us all things in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the beauty of Jesus. Thank you that there's nothing out there in the world that can satisfy us like the beauty of Jesus Christ. And God, we ask that you would just help us gaze at you. Just gaze at Christ. And as we gaze, transform us from the inside out. In your name we pray. Amen.